This Najee Dorsey for another installment of Viator. Here today with Robin Holder, the magnificent printmaker, artist, thinker, intellect. Intellect, I mean, I, I, I can go on and on. I so admire your work, but I think the thing that I admire most is uh, your interest in making work that speaks, that's substantive, you know, tackling so many issues that need to be tackled. Uh, and I'm so glad that you take that you're taking a moment to have a talk with us, uh, with the Black Art in America family, Robin. Well, thank you so much, Najee. It's a pleasure to chat with you, and any opportunity to exchange ideas or to give my point of view is certainly welcome and very appreciated. Uh, you mentioned that um, my work is tackling the issues that are maybe difficult to reflect upon and I and I guess that's what my whole creative artistic life endeavor really is about. It's about how do we present the extraordinary range of complications related to our identity. Mm-hmm. And how do we have a safe and productive and proactive conversation about those complexities. The um so I'm looking I looked at your bio and it looks like this, you know, I, the first thing that I'm seeing is showing up in the eighties. I mean, has this always been a focal point? Or did you come to you know this type of discovery later as you started to develop your your, your career? Well, I guess all all artists, if they're really committed to a creative enterprise, can only reflect what their life is about. And my life has always been about being aware that there are very painful layers of truth. And I guess that has to do with the fact that I'm biracial. Mm. And in addition to being African-American and Jewish, Caucasian, I lived for a number of years in Latin America. And my first husband uh, is Latin American. My son was born there. so that added another um, reality to my identity and my awareness. In the 80s, I was really very concerned with um, issues of women's empowerment and trying to weave together some kind of um, some kind of workable uh, I don't know how to say it, but it would be a platform of how do I deal with the political element of society as well as the spiritual as well as the cultural element. Mm-hmm. Because I found that a lot of people, like many of our African-American artists, are very uh, concentrated and committed to exploring the African-American cultural experience but they may not really deal with some of the global political issues that affect us. Mm -hmm. At 
the same time, Naji, a lot of um, very, I guess, people that consider themselves to be politically oriented or very proactive and concerned about how politics affects the quality of life and the rights of people really don't embrace a spiritual construct. So I guess, you know, that has been maybe one of the more unusual kinds of things that have concerned me, and maybe I might be obsessed about it, but I think that the only way that I can uh, sort of satisfy my destiny is to try to uh, deal with issues that call me. Mm -hmm. Now, not all of them are very... Uh, pleasant to deal with. There are a lot of, we all have a lot of prejudices, we have a lot of uh, fears and ignorances that we are not even aware of. Mm -hmm. In addition, I guess I should mention that I lived outside of the country for five years. So I lived in Europe, I lived in Latin America, I lived in, I lived in uh, Holland, I lived in uh, Mexico, and I lived in Ecuador. So that help me have a more universal outlook about the, I guess, I guess you could say the human condition. Right. Wow. And I think one of the most uh, striking or shocking things to me was, I mean, this really, really, really um, was a landmark eye-opener for me was when I was living in uh, Ecuador and Holland, uh, people were telling me that very clearly I was more American than anything else, so that my idea of myself as an African-American or as a person who had been um, in the populace of those who are the victims was absurd to them, because all that they could see was that I was an entitled American. Mm -hmm. And that really, really, uh, I think that affected me very deeply. And it, it, it still gives me food for thought because even where in this moment where you and I are talking, um, you're in Georgia, I'm in New York, and we are, we represent organically a certain reality or understanding of the world and of culture and of society but when you see us from a global perspective we are part of the one percent of entitled people mm. you know Madi, so when you grow up thinking that you know as you know because i grew up absolutely convinced that as a female as a woman as an African-American, as a Jew, as a politically um, activated person, that I was like in the minority, that I was the, the victim. But when you travel around the world, and in addition to living in three different countries, I traveled around a lot, so you, could, you see how people live, you see how people think. The other thing I think that's very interesting, Naji, is that that's kind of, um, I have sort of like a very restless, itchy yearning is that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the African-American cultural conversation 
extends itself to a more international global platform because when you see how people regard us mm-hmm. in Europe and South America in, in North America in Africa and Asia you get a better understanding of your own reality I mean we only see what we see according to the references that we have but the more that you move around or the more uh, the wider the vision that you get the, the more you see that you're in you're not necessarily where you think you are well maybe in not a, in, a, in, a, in a global perspective yeah I think um, you know one I, I haven't had the benefit or, or taken I would say not the benefit because I've, I've had the resources. I haven't taken the liberty to plan and, you know, actively look to travel, you know, outside of the country. And it's something that I would like to do. I just, you know, find myself busy or continue to stay busy doing what I'm doing. And you mentioned how that has changed, you know, your perspective. And um, I, I've got a, a intern that's uh, an assistant that's working with me right now. And he was doing a photo shoot at some rallies, some protest rallies, doing Ferguson and things, and um, the Me Too movement and things of that nature. And he overheard a Palestinian say, "Once black people in America get free, we all get free." Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, does, yeah. does that? I mean, what, what, what? If you could dive in a little bit more in terms of like what you would, what you would hope that more artists like myself and and and, and our colleagues to take into consideration. I mean, what is that exactly? I mean, we have our own issues that we see every day that we've experienced and our, and our loved ones have, have experienced as well. And so, you know, you're asking that we just take into account what's going on globally um, as it relates to our work, or what does that mean exactly? I, 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 it takes, it takes, we all know that it takes generations and generations and generations for a shift in, I guess I should start with saying it all has to do with power mm-hmm. and empowerment as far as I'm concerned. Everything has to do with some level of empowerment and that can be psychological, that can be um, spiritual, that can be material, it can be cultural, it can be professional, it can be any kind of empowerment. But I think African Americans are uniquely in a very unusual position of being, having been enslaved and still being enslaved in a location and in a societal construct that's considered by billions of people to be the most um, advantageous place, the Mm -hmm. United States of America. Mm -hmm. And a a very dear friend of mine, a Mexican woman um, who um, lives in Ecuador, said it to me very clearly a number of years ago. We were having a conversation and I said, well, Hilda, you know, everybody's innocent until proven guilty. And she said, that's the point, Robert. You, in your head, as a black American, you have that recourse psychologically implanted in your head that you have the right 
to have your day in court, that you are innocent until proven guilty. That's planted in your head. And that's a reference that you use for any time that any, any of your people are victimized. But here in Ecuador, people are so victimized. They, that this country, Ecuador, is ruled by the same 15 families that owned it in the 1600s. And everybody knows who those families are. Mm -hmm. And they rule the economy, they rule the politics, they own everything. So most of the people don't have that reference that they have the right or they, they, they have the right to be heard, that they have the right to not be victimized, that they have the right to not be murdered and gunned down the street. They don't have that. Well, Rob they don't have that as a, you know, a guiding center. Mm -hmm. So African Americans, I think, are seen around the world as very empowered people of color who have a... a a memory of being victimized and a, 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 a current reality of victimized, but yet at the same time have many, many examples of being able to be educated, of being able to move around society, of being able to decide who they're going to marry, of being able to decide on a certain level where they're going to live, you know, who they're going to associate with. But Nadia, I want, you know, just... Uh, this past weekend, I was watching a, a, a Mexican-Colombian soap opera series on Netflix, and I was just watching how the men and the women talk to each other and how the, um, the people interacted with each other. And it's very much of a classist power system. And here, if anything, we have more of a, a maybe a, a professional classist system. At least here in, in, the, in the Northeast, we have a very classist um, professional system of who, who thinks they're in charge and who thinks they're the authority. And all this exists in the art world. I mean, the art world, hmm. um, fortunately, um, and this I find very frustrating and very disturbing, is that African Americans often mimic the white boys club and the way that they deal with each other oh yeah well you know nobody wants to give up their their point of leverage it, it, it appears i mean I, i'm sure we both got countless stories that we could we could tout on that but i kind of want to i kind of want to circle back just a little bit because you know while we do live in a country of you know uh inherent or birthright um freedoms or, or liberties i mean we all don't experience those the same i mean i think there's you know there's just too many cases where we can easily question whether or not you know is is it you know a point of being uh innocent until proven guilty or being able to you know take for granted a certain level of justice when injustice is applied uh, but you know on the whole i definitely understand your point it's the difference between here and and living in other places of the country, but still as, as multiple Americas. And, you know, I think many of us experience them differently. Um, as it relates to the art world, I mean, you, you know, 
you know, there's, there's definitely a, a clan, uh, you know, mentality uh, that's going on. There's, it seems to be a war between the academics and the untrained at times or the, the have and the have nots. Um, but, you know, enough of, enough of me, you know, running, running my head. You know, let me, let me ask you this, because I kind of want to get into a couple of different things. I think, um, you know, one of the questions I had from looking at your, 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 your various uh, bodies of work, you know, from, you know, our uh, social skin to USA, United States of Anxiety, Outsourced and others, you know, can you pinpoint what, if any, particular events inspired those series? The outsource series, um, the outsource series uh, was uh, happened because of a number of things. I wanted to, I wanted to find, uh, explore ways to incorporate text into my imagery. That was one thing, mm -hmm. and then I wanted to kind of challenge myself to figure out how to. Um, incorporate printmaking with painting. So uh, that from a creative artistic point of view, that was the motivation. And at the same time, I um, wanted to reveal the um, sort of... Um, conflicted situation that I and everybody I know really finds themselves in in terms of being middle class and what does it take in terms of global economics mm. for us to be middle class and that whole series of works started to germinate with me right after September 11th 2001 mm. with the bombing of the um Twin Towers, mm. because we were uh, a group of us were at a reception at a gallery fire patrol in Manhattan, and there was a conversation, and one of the artists was talking about why I don't understand why these people hate us so much. And interestingly enough, she was a young Caucasian artist, and uh, in that particular physical grouping, there were a number of. Uh, African-American and Latino people who all had the same take on it and they all, all of them had the perspective of they don't, they don't hate us. You know, we have created a global economy that makes it impossible for them to survive. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to try to figure out how to put that into a visual, something stunning you know, I wanted to do something in, in the outsource. I wanted to do something that was really, in a way, simple, but also very complicated. And I remembered when I was a little girl and my mother took me, this is going back a ways, into Woolworths, and she pointed out these vel paintings on velvet of children with a tear. And she was explaining mm -hmm. to me how this was propaganda. Mm -hmm. And that the image, that the, that the design, that the picture was something that would affect you immediately, emotionally, and it would make, cause you to react. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to take that that at the same time as um, you know satisfy all my other questings um, 
to play around with media, to play around with format, and to infuse the work with this global economy. So I started doing a lot of research about child slave labor and the global economy and how that has affected um, our middle class or the sort of like declining of our middle class. So I spent quite a lot of time doing a lot of research and I came up with figuring out that if I could create an image that was very impactful and it would be a child and the child would represent a real situation in a really specific country of child slave labor and I would do that as a monochromatic print mm-hmm. using stencils that I created and then and I would cut out parts of it so that parts of it were open and that the lower layer would be an acrylic painting of the personal reality that I have in relationship to the slave labor that that child was performing. So it was really very, um, in a way, uh, very horrific and very beautiful at the same time because I tried to make my images very um, visually engaging and very appetizing and very pleasing in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then when you get inside the image, hopefully you're going to, you know, you're going you're gonna to be, you're going to be, you'll, you'll really start to realize all these layers and layers and layers of difficulties around a specific issue. So the outsource was really, you know, an opportunity for me to create this physical two-layered work that included acrylic painting and monochromatic stencil printing mm-hmm. and then it, it had text in it and then the um the united states of anxiety sort of crept up on me just like anxiety starts to creep up on all of us you know this this feeling of um you know, everything is kind of off. Nothing is working. The educational system isn't working. We have global warming. We have uh, gender uh, inequality. We have uh, the healthcare system is abominable. Uh, they're murdering people of color right and left. Everybody's angry. Everybody's frustrated. And at the same time, I wanted to try to do images that were very intimate. And to me, the most intimate thing is to draw. To me, that's the most, it's sort of like the most um, natural extension physically. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to incorporate that with digital imaging and digital editing. Mm-hmm. So I was playing around with that. So what I, what I was doing was I was drawing these portraits and really enjoying, you know, drawing and being very intimate and I don't have to be have a huge thing on the wall and I don't have to be at a, a big drawing table and I don't have to be spread out all over the floor. Just, you know, sitting, relaxing, doing drawing and then um, taking a photograph of that drawing and then digitally um, interweaving it with photographs of dilapidated houses from Detroit. That that's that was the beginning of it. Mm. Because it symbolized Detroit is sort of like the symbol of the fallen middle class and very particularly the black middle class and the and the uh the car culture, you know. Right. 
so that, you know, and I had been to Detroit to exhibit at uh, Del Pryor's um, gallery, and she was taking me all around, showing me these beautiful, beautiful uh, neighborhoods that were, like, partially, like, abandoned. And then, of course, there's that whole element of Motown and what Motown meant to us in the mm -hmm. 50s and the 60s and the 70s, mm -hmm. being from Detroit. So Detroit... In, in a sense, symbolizing the demise of the black middle class or the demise of the American middle class with this sense of, um, you know, nobody knows, everybody's feeling a sense that nothing is working, that the American dream is not attainable, and a lot of people just don't have the time or energy to figure out who the culprits are or how it happened. The, um, the, the homes that you used in this particular uh, body of work, were these actual homes from Detroit? They, first I started l looking at photographs of homes from Detroit, but then editing them. Mm -hmm. So the basis of the structure of the houses were kind of interpreted from actual homes, and then I, I, I edited them out and switched them all around. I mean, it was really funny because Kenny Rogers came to curate a show um, for NCCU, and he came to my studio, and he looked at one of the pieces, and he said, that's the house I was born in, and he kept explaining that the windows, I said, I said that's impossible, Kenny, because that house doesn't really exist. Mm -hmm. You know, I took parts of three or four houses and shifted everything around, and You know, I want to I want to ask you something because printmaking is is a is a staple for you. When you say um, in 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 your in your various bodies of work, I mean I've seen some of the projects that you've done with Curly Houghton, and um, and I'm looking I'm on your website now, and you've got a, a link that goes to remembering Bob Blackburn that I can't get to. But can you talk a little bit about that relationship? Now, which relationship are we talking about? Bob Blackburn. Oh, well, Bob, of course, as everybody knows, was a unique and brilliant shining star. Mm -hmm. He, um, uh, for about nine years, I was the assistant director of the printmaking workshop with Bob when it was on 17th Street. And um, what was brilliant about Bob's workshop was his commitment to enabling people to work together no matter where they came from or no matter who they were whether or not they had funds to pay for using the space or not mm -hmm. so the printmaking workshop was a a unique and incredible place of people coming literally from all over the world and all over the united states to collaborate and experiment and explore. And I guess one of the important things to 
keep in mind about any kind of workshop situation is that um, I think very maybe until recently visual artists were more solitary. I mean, we're not like musicians or dancers who collaborate a lot and interact a lot with each other. We're more in our own spaces. Mm -hmm. But when you have a collaborative or collective uh, space where people are coming in to work together, there's a whole real personal interior process that's going on along with the um, interaction with other artists. It's a very particular type of a relationship. It's, it's not always easy to create, and um, as we all know. And when you're, when you're in the presence of other artists, creating very special kinds of uh, alliances and relationships and understandings are formed, or lack of, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. But the... Um, the making workshop I, I, I would I, I can't even tell you how many of my associations and friendships are born out of Bob Blackford's print making workshop so Bob was able to really foster and pioneer something very 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 unique and anybody who's ever been to the workshop when Bob was there pretty much has experienced it and knows that. It's kind of like an extended community mm -hmm. that appreciates and acknowledges what he did. Now, in addition to that, being a, a dark-skinned black man in America at the era that he was, he really did, uh, you know, never get his um, true place in the uh, development of American printmaking and American art as he should have. Mm -hmm. You know, with a lot of, there, there's, there's, at least there should be some measure of pain or struggle or discomfort when you're in a creative mode. I mean, I believe that. I don't think that you can really create anything without that uh, motivation or that necessity That's interesting. you know I mean the, the reason that we create is because we're frustrated or um, unheard or we have a vision that we want to try to realize or we're not satisfied with what is already so we try to make something new happen and that's a very uh, difficult, it's a very difficult process. It should be a difficult process. I'm thinking, you know, like if it, when I'm working, that's how I kind of know when a, a series is ending is when it gets to be a little too comfortable. Hmm. For me, I know when a series is, has ended, uh, when I run out of energy to, to do more. Um, right, 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 mm -hmm. right. Where it just kind of it flattens out. Yeah, and then I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if I would necessarily agree with the um, 
uh, why, I mean, I guess I was, you know, people have to, you know, people create for different reasons. And, you know, for me, I'm just, you know, I'm trying to, um, you know, in part, it's, in some part, it's propaganda with, with some of my series, like my Resistance series and telling these stories of heroes and sheroes and that are, that, are, that are not as well known. And then some of it is just capturing, you know, a particular uh, Southern culture, Southern lifestyle that's familiar to me. And, you know, but obviously I'm creating imagery that I want to, you know, that I want to put into the world, you know, but it's not, com but it's not coming from a place of, you know, frustration or pain, as you indicate for you, you know? Um, well, it may be that the reason that you're creating images about Southern life or heroes and sheroes is because it needs to happen. There, it, There's an empty space in society, and you need to fill that empty space. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it doesn't, it's not there, or it's not there enough, or it's not there the way you think it should be. So that's a, a level of frustration. Okay, okay. Because when you're satisfied, there's nothing to do. Well, I could definitely I mean, say that say that, that that that's how Baya came about. You know, that's how Black Art in America came about was because of a, a, a huge level of frustration. But mm -hmm. you know, but I can see the parallel that you're drawing in, in relationship to um, into art making. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like when uh, one of the really very pertinent examples of that. Uh, a, a sort of um, reality of creativity coming from a place of a, a lack or a place of frustration or a place of emptiness or a place of pain is Cuba. Mm -hmm. Because when you go, people in Cuba are very creative because they have to be creative because they can't go shopping. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's one of the problems with our society is that there's too much ready-made crap all over the place. Right. I think that's why. You know, it just clogs up, it clogs up, it clogs up, every, it clogs everybody up. You know, it clogs us all up. Right. I think maybe that's why I'm drawn to, you know, uh, folk art outside of art or artists working with, you know, recycle or repurpose material as opposed to, um, you know, just traditional, something that's a little bit more traditional in terms of supplies use and just, you know, singular uh, media. But, mm -hmm. you know, but that, you know, that's a personal preference. Tell me this. What, what are you, are you, uh, are you seeing, I mean, you've been, you've been around for, you know, uh, uh, longer than I have for sure. And what are you seeing? Are you seeing much work that's, what do you think about the art industry right now? What? I, I, I can't get a grasp on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a golden tier artist. I'm not uh, exhibiting in, you know, the Museum of Modern Art of Sydney, Australia. I know that one thing that I'm very happy about is that more and more African-American art is being disseminated internationally, but there's a real classist um, mechanism in place. And it, I mean, I don't really understand a lot of things uh, because I predate uh, the internet and the cell phone. Mm -hmm. But what I do think is, 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 is very interesting is that on one hand, you can have 
the platform that you've created or that you're you are creating because what you're doing Nazi is really very inspiring and it must take tremendous conviction and I think that you are a person who's willing to go beyond your comfort level and I think that that is commendable and very honorable and not that easy to come by. I live in New York City, which is a really mean, nasty place. And um, the art world is almost strangling itself. I mean, I don't even know what the art world is. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't really know what that means anymore. There was a, a, a sort of a construct prior to uh, digital communication where people would do their work and they'd try to find a gallery and then the gallery would try to find collectors for the artist's work and try to place their work in museum collections and try to get uh, their work written about by historians and critics. Mm -hmm. But when people were able to deal with each other directly, instantaneously, digitally, a lot of those platforms became not necessary for a whole bunch of artists. And at the same time, they still exist in a more elite way. Well, you in say a way, it's, it's, it's almost, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed to have created a, a tremendous amount of work mm -hmm. before um, the internet and Instagram and Twitter and all kinds of networks that are, you know, digital networks. So I have... Uh, an inventory or I have uh, a trail of my visual exploration. Hey everybody, it's Najee Dorsey. I hope you're enjoying this installment of Buy It Talks. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media pages. And if you're in the market for fine art, visit us at shopbuyit.com. That's S-H-O-P-B-A-I-A. Dot com, where you can see some of the latest of contemporary art as well as many of our legacy artists. Thanks for tuning in for another installment of Bio Talks. Enjoy the rest of the conversation.
um, nebulous, I think, whatever the art world is or isn't. Well, I think, I think what, I, you know, I've got a very unique perspective. And I think what, 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 what I see is that people, um, people talk about, people say art world. Well, one, there's multiple art worlds. Two, I think, I think people, you know, look at it. I mean, from my experience, I see people talk about, you know, the art world of the, the galleries and the museum and the fairs and things of that nature. But, you know, you've got a whole, I mean, I've seen people that, you know, and we talk about the internet, but even prior to the internet, the art market was changing in the sense that, you know, you have the, 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 the fairs, you've got the festivals, you've got conventions that happen. I mean, so many, I know so many colleagues that were hit the medical, the doctors, and then before the internet, I mean, that's how a lot of black people who have substantial art collectors collections, they would go to their conference, whether it was the Delta Sigma Thetas or AKAs or, you know, the medical, the attorneys, the educators, and they would, you know, they would find, you know, these pop-up galleries, pop-up artists uh, doing these shows, and that's how they got their work. And then you got people that would go to the, to the various art festivals that could have been, you know, held in Atlanta, the art fair in New York, or the one in Baltimore and out in L.A., or they would go to the more, or I, I know a lot of people that would go to the conventional uh, mainstream art festivals that take place, you know, all around the country. And it's like so many artists, um, it's like, you know, when they go to school, they're only being taught one or two things. Like there's, you know, one or two ways to, to, to skin this cat. And, you know, I've had the beauty of doing everything from, you know, everything that I mentioned to owning the gallery to doing the internet. And so I understand that there's multiple art worlds and it's about finding your audience. But so many people, particularly the younger artists and the artists that I'm seeing in these schools, you know, they only, you know, they're taught to just try to find a gallery and that is just so limiting. Like, you know, how many, how many, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to get off on this tangent. I'm just saying that there are multiple art worlds and finding your audience is the most important thing and then being able to change with the times. I mean, because I know the internet has definitely changed how some people uh, go about getting their art. I mean, I talk to people all the time. You know, they see, so anyway, I don't want to, you know, just, just run down that road all by myself. But <laughs> I'm just saying that there's... No, that, I agree with you, and I know that there are artists who don't have a website and don't um, have any work at any museums, and yet they're able to live off of their work, and their work is growing, and they sell their work to people in their community, people who know right, them. Right, right. And they're not acknowledged by any kind of, um, you know, catalog or public art collection. Yeah. I guess a lot of it really has to do with, I mean, you were saying before that uh, to a great degree it has to do with finding your, your, your audience. And I would add to that it really has to do, for me, with what you want your art to do. What is it you want your art to do? You know, like you, like you have a gallery, but your gallery is much more than a place where people exhibit their work and sell their work. Oh, I oh, imagine yeah. it's a meeting place, it's a place for conversation, it's for a place for people to connect. And art is a reflection of every aspect of human endeavor. So when, when you're dealing with art, you're dealing with life, you're dealing with society, you're dealing with civilization. There's no way around it. 
Art is the most comprehensive manifestation of the human condition. So anybody who is developing imagery or selling imagery or promoting imagery or looking at imagery is doing uh, what is the most blessed thing to do is to reflect upon our uh, reality as human beings on planet Earth. That's really what it's all about. So anytime people are forgetting that, it, it, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. it, gets to, it gets to lose its, its sense of true um, value. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's kind of, uh, there has to be that element in the creative artistic activity. There has to be that acknowledgement that it's a all-encompassing reflection of life on Earth. So if we forget that, it's just like if people forget their spirituality, whatever that means to them, mm -hmm. you know, or if it's just like if people forget their humanity, what, look at what happens, look at our country, you know, what's happened with us forgetting our humanity. So it's, 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 to me, it's, it's, you know, I can't even imagine life without art or art without life. Hmm. What uh and you know we kind of want to get to the point where we're gonna wrap this up and I thoroughly enjoyed it um, and look forward to talking to you more. What um what's important to you? I mean we know that art's important. I had someone ask me a question. I thought I found it a little difficult to get past you know art and the immediacy of like my wife when they say well you know what do you value? You know I thought that was a really interesting question. I've never had nobody really ask me that before. You know. So I want to put that on you. I mean, see how and see how you respond. Like Robin, what do, what do you value? What do I value? Mm -hmm. I value humanity. I value dignity. I am. I value honor, and I value asking questions above all. Okay. Asking questions. That's the most important thing. Because I mean, that's what I. That's what I hope that my my work is. It's a it's a questing, a questioning. I'm just questioning. I, I'm not saying that there are any real answers. That it's like it's not necessary to have a Hollywood um, fly off into the sunset happily ever after ending to anything mm -hmm. in life or art. But I, I really value the question. So um, that's really that's really. Um... That's really interesting. I, 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 I spend a lot of time, Najee, trying to figure out what are the most difficult questions mm -hmm. and then trying to explore them, like the process that I engage in and trying to figure out the most difficult questions. Like after, when we hang up, I'm going to go uh, into Manhattan to work on the disillusionment project that, that Marina Gutierrez and I started and I'm responsible and for coming up with all the questions. Well, because we, we've interviewed, um, I think it's 18 really stunning women artists. And um, so 
so we're, we're editing the video, but that, that's, that's, that's very, very, very uh, important to me, and it's not easy to do. You want to talk to us a little bit about that disillusionment project? Um, yeah, Marina Gutierrez and I were in my studio, uh, I think it was the summer of 2016, the summer of 2016, and we were thinking about uh, what would be an interesting uh, way to define the, the creative uh, response to what our country is going through. So we came up with the with the idea of disillusionment. We decided to curate a project called the Disillusionment Project. So we invited a number of uh, women artists, all kinds of women artists, um, to create a piece that would respond to the theme of disillusionment and to create a piece that would reference being clothed in or wrapped in or covered up or veiled in the reality of disillusionment. So the artists created, it was about uh, 20 artists created pieces for the show. And we interviewed um, about 18 of them. So the interviews really have a lot to do with trying to figure out how to get them to really discuss their process, um, the materials that they work with, um, what art does for them in their lives, uh, what it doesn't do, the challenges that they uh, have to deal with, the successes that they have, how they define success. So it's a collection of really um, intriguing work in all media. And uh, from your area, Lynn Linnemeyer mm -hmm. uh, is included in it. And then we have Tamia Rye. Um, there's Sharon Nichols. Um, uh, Carla Lobmeyer. Uh, Mimi Scher. Uh, Sandra Fernandez. Uh, Mary Ting. So it's artists all representing a wide variety of ethnic, ethnic uh, and racial backgrounds and different media. Some are sculptors, some are photographers, some are print makers, some are painters, some are mixed media people. So it's a really very, um, it, it's really engaging, very exciting work. Mm -hmm. And um, just to tie it up, is one of the things that I spent the most um, energy and was trying to come up with questions to present to each of the artists. Um, and the questions are difficult questions. You know, difficult questions. Like, for example, some of the artists are, um, have done a lot of work in the community, a lot of very high-profile community murals or community activist work. And one of the questions that I had for one of the artists was, how do you, um, when you're um, having the responsibility of getting a group of people, quote, quote, from the community to create uh, or generate ideas and to create a work that's going to reflect their community, how do you uh, place or misplace or withdraw from your own ego so that they can then come forward 
but have the right artistic and technical guidance to create something that has uh, some sort of structural integrity as well as, as aesthetic, you know, balance. But those aren't easy questions. I think you know. I think that I think that one thing that we forget as artists is that we're uh, spending a lot of time in our own internal dialogue. You know, because we're creative people, so (laughs) (laughs) we're we're not satisfied with anything. We're always creating. So in any given moment, you know, like you could be engaged with somebody having a conversation, but you're running a movie theater in your own head of the images that purpose from that conversation or the things that that inspires in you true yeah it's very hard to i mean i i mean i think one of the most fascinating things about creative people and artists is how they can shift dimensionally from interacting with other people or the world around them and at, at the same time interacting with their own um you know internal mechanism because mm-hmm. it never shuts off. You know what? So, so in, in in closing, let me ask you this real quick. Because you know, one of this, and I hadn't asked this before in a, in a prior podcast. But you know, artists know the coolest people. We know, you know, we know great work when we see it. You know, besides the work that you're doing, you know, who? Give me, give me, give me two. Give me, give me, give us some homework. Give me two or three names of artists that we need to be paying attention to right now. You need to be paying attention to Shervon Neckel, uh, Caribbean artist. And you need to be paying attention to uh, Tomi Arai, Japanese American artist. Okay. And you need to be paying attention to you, Naji Dorsey. Why do you say that? Because you're unexpected. I think that you, I think that you're uh, you're much more than you appear to be. I think that's very intriguing. I wasn't. I didn't. I. I wasn't looking to get a plug, but. But you know the. No, I'm not giving you a plug. I'm. I'm yeah. telling you honestly what I think. Okay. Well, you know, I appreciate that. You know, I really yeah, do. Yeah, I. I mean, I think it's. You know, I think. Um, you know, I think, and you're kind of, a, kind of one of those symbols of, uh. People saying that there's a lot of really interesting, concentrated creative energy in the South right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that you're very unexpected, Najee. I think that you appear to be um, on one plane, but I think that there's a lot more going on in there. Well, you know, I'm going to have to find my way up to New York so we can explore. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> certainly. 
Yeah. Right, the rotten mango. I never heard the rotten mango before, you know. I like that one. The uh, particularly when I found out what it was, you know, I love, I love, I, I love to visit New York. I couldn't, I could not stay there, man. It's like New York would get you in terms of you gonna, you, particularly if you're driving, you gonna, you gonna spend some money in New York. You know, you gonna get a ticket, a toll, yeah. or something. But um, well, that's why my studio's not, my studio's not in New York. My studio's in New Jersey. Okay. I have like a schizophrenic, schizophrenic life. So like, I just came back in last night from the studio. And I, 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 you know, I have space, I have peace of mind, I have, you know, and I'm one of those New Yorkers that drive, but <laughs> New Yorkers are insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, and I was just, West, uh, you know West. Cochran? Uh, yeah, he yeah. was just telling me. Because we had a, 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 we went to um, a birthday party for Camille Billups' husband, Jim, his 90th birthday party. Mm -hmm. And um, just recently. And so Wes was there. And Wes was telling me that the South will rise again. <laughs> <laughs> that's some good artists in the South, you know. But that's great artists. Yeah, yeah, that's, some art. yeah. yeah. yeah that's some good artists. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's some good artists all over the place. Yeah, for real, like for real, for real. Yeah. And that's the crazy, you know, one, you know, one, one thing that we did get into, and I, I really don't feel no need to be rushed because it's like for people who follow our podcast, they know, you know, we just going to chop it up. And whenever they want to just taper off, they more than willing to taper off. But, you know, let me let me ask you this, because we got we talked a lot about art. We talked a lot about, you know, politics and social justice and the things that influence your work. What about how often do you talk to collectors or when do you talk to collectors about art and what type of conversations do you have with them about engaging in art? Um, it really depends on how intelligent the collector is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you mean, you mean real intelligence are you talking about? Cause I think, I think, I think the question, I think the question really boils down to what's their motive, what's their motive, what's their motivation? Now listen, Dodgy, they should give, in the art schools, they should give a course on the psychology of interacting with collectors. Okay. Let's talk now, about the that. The other thing is that artists are collectors too. No doubt. You know, so no artists doubt. collect, but they might collect for different reasons than collectors collect. I mean, there's all kinds of people who collect, mm -hmm. you know, for, for different reasons. That's right. So um, I think the, the, the interesting thing about collectors is that they are uh, participating viscerally in supporting the culture of their time. And I think that's very valuable. Mm -hmm. I mean, people in the United States don't really pay as much attention to their visual arts as people do in South America or in Europe. That mm. I can tell you for sure. Because most uh, college-educated people in Latin America, uh, at least people in, like who are interested in culture, 
have a few pieces of contemporary art that they've purchased. Same thing as in Europe. But here people spend a lot of money on music, they'll spend a lot of money on the theater, you know, they'll spend a lot of money going to entertain themselves with performing art. But they don't really um, engage as much as they could with the visual arts. And part of that is because the visual arts world keeps itself kind of remote. Like it's some kind of mystery. You know, the thing is, Nazi, that I grew up because I was a girl wanting to use uh, power tools at the age of like eight and nine years old. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I was a, a blue collar worker trapped in the life of, an, of, a, of, an, of, a, of a New York intellectual. I, I had a lot of like tension growing up because of that. I wanted to do things with my hands. I wanted to make things. So I, um, and girls weren't supposed to, you know, take shop. Mm -hmm. But getting back to collecting, um, yeah, collecting is a, is a, is a wonderful thing. Now, younger people don't have, seem to have the same attitude necessarily about it. They're more minimal. Yeah, that is interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't plant themselves in the, you know, there's a certain generational shift, I think. Mm-hmm. When you, you get to millennials, they, they don't seem that interested in um, needing to have physical manifestations of, of the culture, the way that at least my generation does, like have art on the walls, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, but I think I'm a generation, I'm 40, 45, soon to be 46, but I think my generation is the same in, in, in that sense. Like, But um, we're also reminded, like, you know, I mean, we came up, I don't know, you know, with the, the Cosbys and, and then, you know, get, having this whole cultural shift to, you know, black empowerment. Like, you know, I remember in the, of course, it's going to seem late considering the, you know, the 60s and 70s black power movement, but like in the 90s when I graduated, you know, I, when I went to school, we was wearing the black medallion, going to the cultural festivals, you know, picking up, you know, various things. And, you know, we didn't I, we didn't grow up with art, but I quickly came. we quickly came to, you know, picking up a piece or two here and there, trading with other artists. And next thing you know, you know, we, we've actively made it a point to acquire things. And a lot of those are art objects, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just kind of wonder what the role like those festivals, a lot of those festivals are not around anymore. Like what impact is that has that had? You know, art not being in school, you know, what impact is that had? You know, so Yeah, I know. I mean, not yet. you might not know this, but I have a a 40-year career of in arts and education, developing curricula, training people, mentoring people doing professional development, working as a resident artist Mm -hmm. all over the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey. So I know a lot about art in the schools and the lack of art in the schools and what it does to the communities and what it does to children and how empowering art can be and how um, incredibly... um, loving it can be for a lot of children. I mean, I'm here in in an environment where most of the 
students in the public school system are severely disenfranchised on many levels. And I've seen how art can give them a safe haven just to have 60 minutes of acknowledgement and a voice mm. and a creative challenge, critical thinking, all of that. Yeah, self-expression. You know, that's, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's one of the problems that we're experiencing now is this, um, you know, young artists who seem to think that they should be um, famous and rich and brilliant before they actually strive to do anything. Hmm. I think that goes back to what I was saying about there has to be some struggle, some, some pain, some frustration, some tension, because the creative process really does require you to go beyond your comfort zone. I mean, creatively, you yeah. have to do, you have to go beyond, you have to, you have to be able to step just at least a little bit beyond what's known. And that's spooky. Yeah. You know, that can be very spooky. Mm-hmm. You know, let me ask you this real quick, and I'm really gonna have to wrap it up after this, because I know I'll tell you, <laughs> but these, this is so, this is so enjoyable. <laughs> but let me, you know, because we've got we, we we've got this program that I mean not program, but we've got this thing that we're introducing here at the gallery called an industry day, and our first industry day is we're going to look at we've invited barbershops and beauty salons in, and to talk about using their space um, to exhibit work and the kind of impact that it can have on community inspired by what Troy Stanton is doing in Baltimore in his barbershop. When you think about alternative spaces for art and, and you, take a, you think about the barbershops and beauty salons being this haven of how we gather and you know, have free dialogue and discussion, what impact do you think something like this can, happen, can have on those who are introduced to art for the first time in those type of environments? You know, that is the real function of art before it got so removed from regular people. Artists are supposed to have a function in society. And one of the functions uh, is to have the time and the energy and the skill and the wherewithal to present a reflection of the time so that people can have a point of discussion to see themselves. That's what the two functions, the two functions of art was not for some PhD to write a, a dissertation about, you know, how much, uh, how much viscosity there is in um, a collagraph printing using fancy lithographic ink that's not the function of art. The function of art, of art is to reflect the human condition. And for as many people, that's why I did print in the first place. That's why I started doing print in the first place. Because I thought at the time that prints were more mobile, they were more affordable, they were more portable. Mm -hmm. You know? And that they were more, you know, for the people who could access them. That's why, I, I mean, my, my, 
my real, it's interesting because I had a, a kind of a endearing conversation with Elizabeth Catlett once about this. And I told her that I, that I had decided, I, my first inclinations when I was in my teens was to be a sculptor. And Ricky Mayhew was, uh, I was studying with Ricky Mayhew at the Art Students League, and uh, he uh, gave me Richard Hunt's address, and I sent Richard Hunt uh, uh, a package. I must have been about 17. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to be, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a metal welder. But then I realized, well, you know, let me see my city. It's not going to be too easy to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but um, I had a conversation with Elizabeth Catlett about sculpture and how accessible that was to people. Okay. And why, you know, she was certainly, you know, very much uh, dedicated to using art to be a vehicle for what people call political reality. Mm-hmm. You know, and at the time, uh, you know, I had, my, I had my brother had just, my brother, both of my brothers were Black Panthers and one had been incarcerated for seven years. So one brother had just recently come out when I had the conversation with Elizabeth, but she was, she was really into sculpture being, you know, like monumental and public, as a public, you know, something that the masses could, could access. But I said, I, I would rather go with printmaking. See, those were the kinds of, those were the kinds of conversations you could have at Bob Blackburn's printmaking workshop. Mm-hmm. Really very special conversation. We'll have to we'll have to talk more at a at another time. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. And I thank you. No, I thank I thank you, and this won't be the last time. Um, okay, Narcy. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really wonderful. <laughs> Same here. This is Najee Dorsey for another installment of Bio Talk today with Robin Holder. Robin, we certainly appreciate your time, and for those who would love to learn more about your work and to follow you, where can they do that? Uh, just go to www.robinholder.org or just Google me and stuff will come up. Stuff going to come up? All right. Stuff Look. Will come up. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a great day. Talk to you soon. You too. All Thank right. you, Nadia. Bye now. <laughs>